It is good to start the Lord's Day together. And although I understand that uh, because it is Independence Day that we're uh, obviously not having uh, church tonight, it still kind of hurts me a little. I'd rather uh, I'd rather have church with every four of you here, so uh, that's okay. We we understand once in a while we have to go with some cultural things, and we'll uh, you enjoy whatever uh, you're doing this evening. But we're going to look this morning at uh, really the heart of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Um, three out of five of the books we'll do. Uh, the wisdom books we'll look at today, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And um, again, if you're kind of new to Bible Training Institute, this is just broad overviews to help you understand from here on out um, how to read these books and how to understand them, which is uh, better than going through your whole life just kind of reading through and not really grasping the big picture. So this is to help with that. Well, let's pray and then we'll get started on these wonderful wisdom books. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time that we have this morning to look at the wisdom that you have given in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Lord, we are thankful to you for not leaving us to guess. You have given us not only the gospel of Christ, but you have given us the outworking of the gospel, how we are to live, how we are to view the world, how we are to view ourselves. You have explained in great and grand detail exactly how we're to conduct ourselves, what it really means to walk in the manner worthy of the the calling to which we've been called, to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning you would be honored and glorified as we look to the wisdom found in the Old Testament. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's start with Proverbs. The Hebrew title, the first word of the book, Proverbs. So that's where we get that uh, that title in the uh, the Septuagint. Greek translation of the Old Testament has a longer title, the Proverbs of Solomon. Um, the author, probably at least eighty five percent of it, is Solomon. But there's a a compilation that also took place in the days of Hezekiah with some other uh, authors. But generally speaking, we just call Solomon the author. When did these take place? Well, the Proverbs of Solomon, 970 to 931 B.C., obviously during his lifetime. And then the final collection in the days of Hezekiah, probably around 690 uh, B.C., somewhere in there. So uh, it's one of the few books of the Bible that we openly say have multiple authors, um, but the authors are listed. And so that's uh, that's how we can know that for sure. Um, Staying big picture here, what are the major themes Historical and theological themes. First of all, the God of the Proverbs. Proverbs is not meant to be just ripped out of a context of being a follower of Yahweh. It's not general wisdom for people in general. It's it's specific wisdom for followers of God. And so you have the fact that God is sovereign, is all over Proverbs. You have the fact that God is man's maker. And we've talked about this before, but again... Proverbs is yet another example of a creationist book that you can't just say, well, Genesis 1 and 2 are mythology, but I believe the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible affirms God as a creator. God is the the blesser of man. He is the one who brings blessing, particularly associated with obedience. And then God is man's judge. Uh, Proverbs is filled with the natural consequences of what it means to not follow God, to not walk in his ways, consequences are going to happen. 
And so you have God of the Proverbs. He is, he is the central focus. You're, you're taking Proverbs as a way to live before God in a way that's pleasing to him. Then you have the theme of mankind before God. In Proverbs, very clearly, man is a rebel. Man needs to trust God. That's imperative for us. And that all of us are the same before God. And so we have this, uh, this equality, both in terms of being made in the image of God, but also in terms of our sinfulness and our need for, for wisdom. And then you have uh, what most people think of the main theme of Proverbs, but I, we listed God of the Proverbs and, and mankind before God first. We want to stay big. Most people consider the main theme, though, to be the personal conduct of mankind. And it includes all kinds of uh, topics, diligence and how you speak to one another, humility, anger, uh, joy, marriage, child rearing, finances. Really, every major area of life is covered in Proverbs. And so those are just the broad themes. Uh, generally speaking, uh, and I don't, have a, I don't have an interpretive structure here for you, um, but let me give you an easy interpretive, not interpretive structure, a uh, literary structure. Uh, easy literary structure. Chapters 1 through 9 are introduction. Why you should read chapters 10 through 31. Um, the literary structure of Proverbs is is highly debated. Some say there is no structure, and yet some scholars have successfully put together some sections that really go well together. Um, and I'll talk about uh, how you use Proverbs in just a minute. What's the main purpose of the book, though? The main purpose is that the young, naive son is given exhortation to and instruction in the ways of wisdom. The young, naive son is given exhortation to and instruction in the ways of wisdom. And so there are all kinds of exhortations, and specifically it's written to young men. Not that uh, women can't certainly uh, apply the book from cover to cover, but it's written specifically to a son. Now, here's an irony to this. Uh, Solomon had a son. Solomon's son's name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam took precisely 24 months to split the kingdom of Israel into two because he was like the worst king ever to that point. And so the sad part, the sad irony of Proverbs is that Rehoboam, likely the main recipient of the book of Proverbs, did not follow these Proverbs. He did not abide by the wisdom. And what happened? Massive, massive consequences. So Rehoboam stands as a lesson that if you don't follow God's ways, then bad things happen. There's a key verse in Proverbs Chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's a pretty good verse to remind us of on the Lord's day too, isn't it? That we're here to be instructed. We're here to become wise more and more. Now, there's a couple of interpretive issues as you, uh, as you read through Proverbs that you might be interested in. Let me back up one. Uh, first of all, did Solomon borrow from other sources or is it all original? And there's some debate here because there's a lot of similarities to some ancient uh, secular wisdom literature. But let me give you some, some other factors. First of all, Proverbs has a distinct stamp of the fear of the Lord. That is unique to Proverbs when compared to other wisdom literature of the ancient Near East, obviously, because other wisdom literature didn't believe in or worship Yahweh. 
So Proverbs is saturated in the fear of the Lord. Um, in fact, it's kind of bookended. Chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And chapter 31, verse 30, the very end of the book, um, speaks of a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. And so the bookends of Proverbs, fear of the Lord. We also see that Proverbs is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So whether or not Solomon used other sources or not doesn't make any difference. It is an inspired text. And, um, and not all wisdom has to come directly from the mouth of God. It is possible as humanity to learn some things on our own. What I mean is, is that if you are an atheist and you get ripped off at a certain store 10 times, the 11th time you're going to say, don't go to that store. That's a bad thing because you've learned. You're, you're made in the image of God. And so it's no surprise to us that there's wisdom literature written in other cultures because men learned things. However, where does all wisdom ultimately come from? It comes from God. And so Proverbs is the only ancient Near Eastern wisdom source that acknowledges the actual source of all wisdom. And then another factor in 1 Kings chapter 4, Solomon is said to be wiser than all. So he would be able to discern if the wisdom of others is valuable or not. In other words, he was a divinely inspired researcher. And he would say, this makes no sense, but this one is of God. And so he was, as the wisest man of all time, able to discern what was helpful and what wasn't. And then the fourth and probably most important factor when we consider this interpretive issue Secular wisdom might be similar to Proverbs. I've even had people tell me, why do I need the Bible? There's lots of sources of wisdom that say very similar things. And that may be true. Secular wisdom may be similar to Proverbs, but it can't ever lead to true wisdom. The only true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. There is no wisdom outside of that because you can live a seemingly wise life Uh, outside of Christ. You can uh, be faithful to your wife or your husband. You can save your money. You can uh, be responsible. You can be a law-abiding citizen. You can do all of those things, but if you did not fear the Lord, you spend eternity apart from him. So there was no wisdom in that whatsoever. In fact, it was absolute foolishness to think you could live a wise life apart from God. And so true wisdom leads to the fear of the Lord and ultimately leads... um, Uh, leads away from self-righteousness then you have the uh, the issue of the speaker in proverbs 8 21 through 31 proverbs 8 22 the lord possessed me at the beginning of his work the first of his acts of old many feel that this is a prophecy or a, a foretelling of messiah that this is this is jesus speaking The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Well, the problem here is that the context of the book is wisdom. And when it says that the Lord possessed me, that's a feminine noun. And all throughout Proverbs, wisdom is characterized as a woman. And so what what is the, who, who is the speaker? It's simply the personification of wisdom. And, and I think an easy way to think about this is if you had a little kid, and you were trying to explain that there is this there is this thing, this person called wisdom. Let me introduce you. Wisdom. What would you say to my child? Well, I would say that you should obey your father and mother and that you should do this and this. 
Well, wisdom, what would you say to how you manage your money? Well, I would say that it's good to know what you have and to take care of it and so forth. All it's doing is making wisdom so elevated by personifying it as if it's a woman speaking to you. Isn't that a great picture? It's, it's like wisdom is like our mother. It is like uh, having this, this mother on your shoulder all the time. Oh, I just feel like sleeping in. Proverbs 6 says that the sluggard sleeps till noon and the mother is there saying, don't do that. And so who is the speaker? It's simply a personification of wisdom, which is a great tool that Solomon uses. And then you have, um, who is, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't advance that slide. Uh, Then you have one last issue. Who is the virtuous wife of Proverbs 31? A few will say that it's just sort of a personification of wisdom, uh, that this is what the classic, action, the classic wife would be. Well, the problem with that is if it's personification, if it's a perfected view, then it's not something that we can aspire to. Um, it, it's sort of like you know, saying uh, that a, a man should be uh, an Olympian and have five college degrees and have all kinds of things, and, and every man goes, well, I can't even come close to that. So to say it's a personification is not accurate. A better view is that this is a literal wife and mother. That is the majority view. It is a correct view um, because it's, it's attainable. Now, I think we could also be correct to say that this is a wife and mother possibly over the course of her lifetime, that she's not doing all these things at once. Um, but uh, I've, I've talked through and we've written a book on Proverbs 31. And probably the best view is that this is an older woman who has lived her life and you're looking at it as an example, the way she's established herself. She has children in the home. She probably has grandchildren. She has servants. She has a husband who's old enough to be an elder in the gates of the town. And so uh, is this an actual woman? Uh, yes, either a literal, literal woman who actually lived Um, or somebody that uh, is set up as an example that is attainable, not an unattainable example. So I want to talk to you just for a moment about uh, some of the implications of Proverbs and kind of how to use the book, just just for a second. Proverbs is not intended to be 100% applicable all the time. These are statements of general truth. And what it does is it makes the reader wrestle with wisdom. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he, was, he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that true 100% of the time? No. Um, I, I've said this before. I always recommend having lots of kids because they don't always all turn out that well. So you got to kind of average it out there. It's not always the case. But it is generally the case, and it's enough of the case that your job is to raise up a child in the way he should go, And what happens after that is up to the Lord. And so Proverbs is, it's not a book of promises. It is a book of principles. And there's a big difference. Um, The principles of saving your money. Generally speaking, if you save your money, you're going to be, uh, have a little more security in your life. Is that always the case? No, sometimes you lose all your money just because circumstances happen. But generally speaking, it is, Truth that we're to wrestle with. We also would say that it's not just a a dispensary of easy information. The topics are scattered. They're also in poetic form. It makes me wrestle with them. It makes me look for them. I 
I've often wondered why why aren't proverbs just just uh, arranged topically. Well, I don't think we would wrestle with it. We would just go to it as a quick reference. But what you have to do now is read through it. You have to you have to tear through proverbs in a very uh, like you're like you're eating a giant piece of meat. You have to bite through it and work through it. It's not cut for you. You're not a small child with a little plate where it's brought to you all cut up and ready to go. It is. Uh, designed to make you wrestle with them. Uh, for example, uh, <clears throat> two verses in a row that uh, say, and I don't remember which one comes first, um, answer a fool according to his folly. Then the next one, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which one is it? Is it a contradiction? No, it makes you wrestle with those truths. When do you answer a fool according to his folly? It means you're destroying a faulty argument that is made. Um, when do you not answer a fool according to his folly? It's when somebody is, is acting in a sinful fashion towards you and you don't act, react in a sinful fashion toward them. And so it makes you wrestle with these things. It's not uh, a dispensary of easy information. However, I will tell you this. I don't remember the title of the book, but you can look at it on Amazon, um, written by Richard Mayhew, M-A-Y-H-U-E. I used to work with, with Dick Mayhew, and he's written a compendium of Proverbs in topical order just so you can use it as a reference guide. But he says very clearly in the introduction that that this is not how Proverbs was meant to be. This is just a study guide to help you. So what do you need to do with with Proverbs? I think Proverbs ought to be used as a good multivitamin in your life. Uh, Spiritual multivitamin that you take in a little at a time and you just do it on a regular basis. Interesting to me that Proverbs is divided into 31 chapters. What does that tell us as a possible reading plan for Proverbs? How about one chapter a day for a month? Uh, a few years ago, some of us went to Israel and our, our uh, tour guide, Dr. Michael Grisanti, whatever day of the month we were on, we had to read that chapter of Proverbs. So if it was the 16th of the month, that morning on the bus, we read Proverbs 16 aloud. And it was just a great way to, to sort of take in that vitamin. One more implication. Again, back to the excellent wife of Proverbs 31.10. There are 22 verses that form an acrostic in the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, it was meant to be learned by women. And just a little note here, and I know we've written a whole book on this, but I think it's interesting that um, the the origin of these Proverbs, this is the closest we have in the Bible to a portion of the Bible being written by a woman. This is a man recording the sayings of his mother. And it's King Lemuel saying, these are the things my mom taught me. This is what my mom taught me about what kind of wife I should look for and I should find. Who is King Lemuel? Lemuel almost certainly was a nickname that Bathsheba had for Solomon. And so that also is written by Solomon. Interesting to me that Bathsheba forgiven of adultery, and who finally marries King David is the one who would originate the greatest chapter on how to be a godly wife in all the Bible. I, I think that's a, an excellent example of the grace of God. So there's Proverbs. I hope you'll take in Proverbs. I hope you'll wrestle with them. I hope you'll see the, the delight in the, the, the wisdom such as better, uh, <clears throat> better to have a dish of vegetables and not own very much than to have a fatted calf with strife in your household. Those things that make you say, you know, I'm thankful to have this yam and this uh, carrot because I have peace in my family. Rather than I have all this stuff, but there's strife 
great, great wisdom. I hope you'll make Proverbs a, a part of your life. Um, just a little personal testimony. There have been two times in my life that I faced a major, major crossroads. One that would be life-changing for me and for my whole family. And I, um, you, you couldn't find it online yet, but at these times I photocopied the whole book of Proverbs and I got highlighters. And I simply read through and I highlighted every verse that I thought was even remotely uh, related to this problem I was facing. You know, on both occasions, by the time I finished Proverbs 31, I knew exactly what to do. I had no doubt in my mind what I needed to do. And that came to me um, through some hard work. And I would encourage you to try that. Well, Proverbs is probably easier to understand than one of the more mysterious books of the Old Testament, and that is Ecclesiastes. The title in Hebrew, Koheleth, it means to convene an assembly or it means a preacher. So uh, it would be, in fact, uh, it would be the Hebrew version of ecclesia. In fact, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes means ecclesia, the, the gathering. Um, so it's, it's very much uh, something that's meant to be taught. Uh, Ecclesiastes, by the way, if, before I forget, a superb book to teach the teenagers. Because Ecclesiastes basically is um, a life lived in advance. Let me live a really unwise life and then go back and tell you why you shouldn't do this. And I'll get to that in a moment. The author is Solomon. Again, the dates of the events during the the time of Solomon. This is the reign of Solomon, 970 to 931 uh, BC. So what are some of the major themes? We'll do a couple of them in detail and then just highlight the others. The major theme, of course, is vanity. 38 times. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word for vanity in Hebrew, it means breath. It means air. It means everything is... It just doesn't matter. Hevel. It just means it's blown away. And so, when you, if you read through Ecclesiastes without a proper understanding of Ecclesiastes, it's a depressing book. Everything I've tried has made me miserable. And, the, and Solomon basically says, look, if anybody on planet Earth has ever tried everything, it's him. He's tried wealth. He's tried women. He's tried uh, happiness in every way possible. And he says, it's all vanity. Well, we'll get to why this is such an important book in a, in a minute. Then there's the theme of under the sun, 29 times. This is a massive, massive interpretive key to the book because the book focuses on the way things appear to be on this side of heaven. That it seems like uh, certain things are vanity. They're meaningless. They're, they're just blown away. They're transitory. That, that nothing seems to matter. But the book ends by bringing the reader back to the concept of, of judgment. And at the very end of the book, it touches heaven. Uh, anytime I've ever preached from Ecclesiastes, I always refer to the end of the book because you can't understand pro- Ecclesiastes properly without re- reference to the end. Here's what the end says. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, under the sun, 
this side of heaven, life can seem like it's meaningless. It can seem like you're just going through things. And all of us have had that. Have you ever, have you ever been sitting down at your job or doing something you don't want to do and you just suddenly go, why am I wasting my breath doing this? Why am I wasting what precious time I'm doing uh, on this earth? I should be out having an ice cream cone. I should be out enjoying myself. Well, Ecclesiastes says, you're going you're gonna to run into that too after your 50,000th ice cream cone. Oh, what am I doing? This doesn't do anything for me. I should try steak after your 10,000th steak. Oh, what am I doing? I should try making more money. Okay, I've made a billion dollars. This hasn't done it. And Ecclesiastes just pictures you ping-ponging from thing to thing and nothing making you happy. But it ends with this. You can, in fact be happy in this life you can enjoy an ice cream cone you can enjoy your work you can enjoy even the mundane things of life because under the sun is not where it ends under the sun is where your life begins and so beyond the sun in heaven is where we're looking so i would say ecclesiastes actually teaches us that um, the enjoyment of life is most possible for the believer in christ because we have such a glorious future And we'll talk about that just here in a moment. You have the theme of death. You have the theme of labor and toil and work. And it's uh, labor and toil and work is presented in two lights. That sometimes it just feels meaningless, but other times there's a satisfaction to it. And you've you've known this instinctively. Whenever you've done something that's hard and you get to the end of that thing and you've achieved a goal, that is a spectacular feeling, isn't it? It's because God made you to do that. He made you and so there's enjoyment there. Obviously, in the context, next theme of fearing God. And again, the theme of enjoying life. That in the end, the only people who can really enjoy life are those who are fearing God and are accountable to Him. And only they can enjoy the things that are transitory. I, I didn't make up the illustration of the ice cream cone. The first time I ever heard Ecclesiastes preach, that was the major illustration. And it stuck with me. Um, this has been 35 years ago. But the ice cream cone illustration basically says, if you are not in Christ, you're going to go from ice cream cone to ice cream cone to ice cream cone in this life, desperate for some sort of satisfaction that will never, ever come. But if you're in Christ, you can have the ice cream cone and enjoy it because you might get run over by a truck. Who cares? I'm in heaven. Or you can thank the Lord for it. What a great thing that God invented chocolate. I hear amens and hallelujahs. and What a great thing to sit with your family and just enjoy one another and enjoy laughter. Only the Christian can enjoy those so-called mundane things of life. To just laugh and enjoy those things because heaven is coming. Everything good you ever experience now, that's just a foretaste. And that's a, isn't that a beautiful thing? And then you have the theme of the heart. It is a misnomer to say that the Old Testament does not deal with the heart. Ecclesiastes is all about your heart. It's all about where are you going to find your contentment? Where are you going to find your ease and your joy? What's the purpose of the book? Very simply, how to live in a post-fall world that's filled with vanity, filled with, filled with uselessness. And that in spite of the seeming futility Involving man's existence, the wise man should fear God and enjoy life as the gift from God. I think Ecclesiastes is a great means toward contentment. 
The discontent Christian, I've noticed there's something that goes along with discontentment and that's a lack of thankfulness, a lack of gratitude. And very often when I've seen um, somebody in counseling and they just say, I just can't be content, I give a very simple assignment and that is that for the next week or two, I want you to list every single blessing you have all day long. Very often they bring back a list. Well, I brought back two. Okay, let's see if we can think of 50. Did you wake up breathing this morning? Yeah. What'd you wake up in? A bed? Yeah, you weren't sleeping on rocks, right? Uh, did you wake up under the stars? No, I have a roof. Uh, did, you, did you go and, and uh, rub sand on your body to clean yourself? No, I have a shower. And once you begin thinking, wow, I have so much, so much to be thankful for, um, then you begin to enjoy life as a gift from God because you know that as somebody who's in Christ, you can enjoy those little things. You can enjoy every little thing because there's more to come. How do you understand the book? I think the key to understanding the book is to take this particular purpose, how to live in the post-fall world filled with vanity, and apply it to uh, every section in the book. The, the book is set up like a journal. It's a diary. And so in the earlier passages, a conclusion isn't reached yet. So in other words, if you want to take, if you say, I'm going to study Ecclesiastes for the next three years, that's great. Read chapter 12 first. Just, just get to the end so that you can, uh, you can understand the journey. What Ecclesiastes does, and this is why it's so great to give to teenagers and to have them study it and read it, it chronicles a life where Solomon experimented with finding happiness in every way possible. Now, the whole issue of whether Solomon uh, was sinning when he did that, that's not the point. The point is, is he's looking back as an old man. He writes Ecclesiastes as an old man saying, here's all the stuff I tried that didn't work. Tell this to a teenager. Um, I like to tell, I've told my own children, I like to tell youth groups, I like to tell anybody in that age category, there are two ways to learn in this life. You may learn by listening to the wisdom of others, or you may learn the hard way. The easy way, hard way. I'll make kids repeat it. Which one? Easy way or hard way? What do most kids want to do? I'm going to try the hard way because I'll be the first one to find contentment in money. But it doesn't work. And so Ecclesiastes is an old man saying, here are all my mistakes. Don't do these and enjoy your life. Don't don't get to the point where you're 60 or 65 or 70 and look back and realize you lived your whole life in anxiety or lived your whole life not enjoying things, lived your whole life waiting for something else to make you happy. That's a sad place to be. Instead, be content now with what you have. What is the literary structure of Ecclesiastes? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's one of the most disputed topics in Old Testament studies. Basically, it's when do the sermons uh, start and stop. I think the one thing I want you to get is that there is a, it, it is set up with a central focus, and that is Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, and that is the center of the book. It is to fear God. And so you begin the book with vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Everything is... Whew, at the end of the book, it is fear God. In the middle of the book, it's fear God. And so you, you get that uh, answer to vanity, which is the fear of God. And like Proverbs, it's meant to wrestle. It's meant for you to wrestle with it. Uh, near the end of Ecclesiastes, it talks about seek the Lord while you are young. Um, 
why is that so good for, for youthful people? You ever try sharing the gospel with a 90-year-old? It's difficult. They're recalcitrant. They, their mind isn't always all there. It's hard and it's heartbreaking to share the gospel with somebody who can't even grasp what you're saying. And so the, the admonition is seek the Lord while you have your mental faculties. Seek the Lord while, while you're young and you can serve him your whole life. All kinds of wisdom to wrestle with just like you do with Proverbs. A couple of interpretive issues and we won't spend a long time on this. The authorship issue the Solomonic uh, authorship is the traditional view of both Jews and Christians. Um, the very first one in the modern era to question whether or not Solomon was the author uh, was Martin Luther. And the reason Martin Luther questioned it is because he believed Solomon was a saved man and he said a saved man wouldn't ever write Ecclesiastes. Um, so I understand his, his logic, but uh, we have 500 years of scholarship since then to help us understand that this is a saved man who lived at very at times a very unwise life and is trying to prevent others from doing the same. And then the purpose. Some say it's a negative purpose. The human wisdom is other folly. That all the things you try is other folly. Others say there's a positive purpose, that this is the revelation of godly wisdom. I think the best way to understand this is that it's a combination it's a revelation of godly wisdom in response to the futility of human wisdom. Try all the things that will make you happy, you think, and then come to God. Um, interestingly enough, side note, and I just thought of this first time right now, so we'll see what happens for the next 60 seconds. There is a whole system of evangelism out there that says basically this, try Jesus. Just try Jesus and see if he doesn't give you a fulfilled life and give you a, a fulfilled uh, understanding of, of heaven and hell and all this. Just try Jesus. Actually, Ecclesiastes is just the opposite. It says, after trying the world and that doesn't work, fear God. How can you try Jesus? You're either regenerate or unregenerate, Right? You can't say, I think I'll try being regenerate for a while. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Calls that apostasy. That I tried religion. Hebrews chapter 6. It is impossible for those who have pretended to be Christians for so very long and then rejected Christ. It is impossible to bring them once again to repentance. So, do you try Jesus? No. When you say try Jesus, you're actually saying... Uh, go down the road of being an apostate who can never, ever come to repentance. You don't try Jesus. You submit to Jesus. You surrender to Jesus. You succumb to Jesus. You are, are enslaved by Christ. So it's not try Jesus. It's have you tried the world and how's that working out for you? Doesn't work, does it? So now come to Christ and fear God. What are some implications of Ecclesiastes? Well, one of them, I think, is very interesting. It helps us understand Romans 8, 18 through 23. And let me just read this to you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits for eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is a significant number of scholars that think that this is Paul's commentary on Ecclesiastes. That uh, even beyond just can you enjoy life a little bit now, yes you can, but beyond that, any of the sufferings that we go through now, it's not vanity. It's, in fact, it's so little, it's so pointless that Paul says, don't even, don't even compare it. You can't even say, well, my suffering is this big, but heaven is this big. Paul says, can't even make the comparison. Can't, don't even assign a size to suffering. It's so small, it's like, don't even put it under a microscope. You couldn't even see it then. Compared to the glories that are to come, And so Ecclesiastes does say, yes, live a meaningful life under the sun. Paul takes it a step further, but look beyond the sun and look beyond um, to what is coming. Yes, we groan now, but we look forward to what Christ is going to do. So this is important for us because Ecclesiastes and Romans 8, 18 through 23 basically destroy the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that you can have hope because everything will get better in this life. You know how I can prove that? There will be a moment, one minute before you die, where you say, I don't think everything's getting better in this life. I I think we're done with that, with that view. And so what moves you forward isn't waiting for everything to get better now, but looking to God until this time of suffering is over and enjoying what we have. I've been so blessed. We've had numbers of, uh, numbers of believers here at Grace uh, go home to heaven and I've gotten to spend some time with them. And it's, it's been such a blessing to see even uh, uh, one particular person say, hey, I, you know, they're in the hospital. Hey, I got vanilla ice cream today. It was really good. Literally using the ice cream illustration. It was really good. You're going to heaven in two days maybe and you're talking about ice cream. Yeah, it was yummy. I love that. Isn't that a great way to live? To be content like that. Ecclesiastes teaches us that in the fear of the Lord, we can want what we have instead of having what we want. That it can just be okay. That whatever, whatever we have is what we have. Again, this is outstanding for teaching to young people. Uh, it gives a taste of what a feudal life looks like before actually living the whole thing. Yeah, you remember how this is. When you're... 15 or 16 you can't picture being 45 and a failure you you can't picture that you know usually when you're 15 well by the time i'm 22 i'll be independently wealthy uh i will own this and i will have this i'll travel the world uh not even realizing wow it costs money to travel the world and and i'm not qualified to do anything so nobody's paying me anything and so ecclesiastes says hey don't get too big for your britches because you're 15 now you're going to blink and be 45 failed at everything you've done now what now what are you going to do it teaches us to have peace when life is unjust it teaches us that god is sovereign over a broken world but he does intersect with it it teaches us that this is a time between the garden of eden and heaven and to keep that perspective And it teaches us not to pursue happiness and contentment through worldly means such as a career or money or pleasure. Uh, The old saying is is that you've been climbing the career ladder only to find out it was leaning against the wrong building. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. What's at the top of the career ladder? A big fall. That's it. 
You get to the top, they give you a gold watch on your way down, and you're done. So, let's spend a little, more, little time on Song of Solomon, and hopefully we'll get to finish this. Song of Solomon. In Hebrew, it is the Song of Songs, uh, meaning the song of all the songs, the best one. In the English Bible, we take it as the Song of Solomon by Solomon, that he wrote it. The author is Solomon. Um, that has been debated somewhat in recent years, but it hasn't been debated really for the last uh, 3,000 years, so we won't worry about the last 100 years too much. The date of the events, again, sometime in his lifetime, in his reign. Uh, interestingly, its position in the canon of Scripture, in the Hebrew Bible, it comes right between Ruth and, uh, 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 sorry, it uh, goes Proverbs 31, Song of Solomon, and then Ruth. So why is that important? I had this written wrong in my notes, and I, I re- remember this every two years, and I never have a pen. Somebody have a pen you can throw at me. Right there. Thank you. Took me four times through to remember this. Okay, thank you. I'll toss it carefully back. Oh, no. Okay, you win. I was, I was the less good thrower. Um, what, how does Proverbs 31 end? It is a godly wife. Then you have Ruth and right in between Song of Solomon. That is a great order. Um, so I think, that's a, I think that's a wonderful little trio for us. 1 Kings 4, 32 says that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. Song of Songs says this is his best. This is the best one. It's a very rustic, uh, nature-driven, descriptive book. There are 22 names of plants and 15 names of animals. In fact, a lot of what we know about uh, plants and animals in Bible times comes from Song of Solomon. Um, that even, even non-Christians uh, who are botanists and so forth have been interested in Song of Solomon for this. There's a very old tradition among Orthodox Jews that men under the age of 30 shouldn't read Song of Solomon This is a terrible view. It's an errant view of Scripture since part of the purpose of Song of Solomon is that it's addressed partly to the young unmarried person. That's that's part of the purpose of the book. That tradition is based on a faulty assumption that reading God's Word can lead you into sin. That's a pretty serious thing to say. And I've heard that uh, among Christians of our ilk saying, well, you shouldn't have uh, kids read Song of Solomon because it, it could, hang on, finish the sentence, it could lead them to what? Or it could lead them to temptation. So are you saying that the Bible, the Word of God, will lead you to temptation? No, I'm not saying that. Well, what are you saying? So if we're going to stay consistent, Song of Solomon is for all Christians. It is for, for all of us. Now, the beauty of Song of Solomon is that when an eight-year-old reads it, he has no idea what's going on. It talks about gardens and flowers. And you go, what is this? You get a little older, you go, oh, I get this. I know what this is about. There's also the problem of moralistic judgment that tries to deny the existence of marital sexuality, that, that somehow you're supposed to have this dawning realization that as you're walking down the aisle after I've said, I now pronounce you husband and wife, suddenly all the sexual parts of yourself, bing, oh, now it's there. That's not the way we're built. I was in a seminary class once and the professor asked, how many of you thought about the millennial kingdom in the last hour? Be honest. And one guy's like, "Eh," he's kind of a nerdy guy. Well, I think about it all the time. And he said, how many of you have had sexual thoughts in the last hour? 
Your men, be honest, you're before God. You're going to die a horrible, fiery death if you're not honest right now. 99% of the class going up like this. Denying that something exists doesn't make it go away, nor should we try. That is what some have called Christian asceticism. That because something is physical or enjoyable or has the potential for sin, that we should just stay away from it altogether. Um, In 1 Timothy 4, Paul said to stay away from teachers who forbid marriage. Why were they forbidding marriage? Well, if you're not married, you're not worried about sexual things. If you're not worried about sexual things, then you're not going to sin. How's that worked out for the last 7,000 years? It hasn't. So, um, I am a firm believer in letting people read Song of Solomon. I'm not going to deny that that portion of the Word of God. I have a friend who was in um, a junior high Sunday school class where the junior high pastor preached through Song of Solomon to the 7th and 8th graders. And he did it over a long period of time. And my friend says that impacted him more than any other thing as a child because he so desperately wanted to have a godly, godly marriage someday. And that's what did it for him, was having that to look forward to. Historical and theological themes. All kinds of mushy language. My love. Companion, bride, sister, dove, most beautiful among women. And then my beloved is the man. You have the daughters of Jerusalem. This story has a chorus of, of observers. It's sort of like going to, a, going to a musical and you have the man and the woman singing and, and a bunch of the daughters of Jerusalem come in and, oh, and they sing something too. And then the man and the woman again and then the chorus comes in and says something. And then you have, the, you have the king who is Solomon and you have a shepherd. Now here's the big question. Are the shepherd and the king the same person? I hold to the view that yes, they are. Because if Solomon and the shepherd are not the same person, the song of Solomon is the story of Solomon losing out in a romantic endeavor to some poor old shepherd. So are they the same person? I would take the view that they are. You have the theme of a garden. It's speaking of the physical body. It speaks of intimacy in marriage. And you have the theme of wine, which goes along with with that pleasure in marriage. What is the purpose? I'm giving you the short version and, and I don't have time to go into the longer version, but basically the purpose is this is a celebration of marital joy. It is God's view of love and marriage. And I'll get to other potential views here in just a minute. It's a celebration of marital joy. It's God's view of love and marriage. My question would be, um, if, if marriage is not that important, or if we just need to ignore sexual, human sexuality, why is one out of the 66 books of the Bible devoted to this topic? It's very important. Literary structure. There are multiple ways to look at the structure. This is what's called the story structure. There's other ways to look at it. Um, Song of Solomon is actually a, it is a genius work. Um, I, most of you know what a chiastic structure is uh, that uh, where basically you have the most important parts in the middle and everything on either side kind of mirror image each other. Well, Song of Solomon can be observably proven to not only have a chiastic structure, but all the major sections of that chiastic structure are also chiastic. And within those, there are at times a third level of chiastic structure. It's not possible from a human standpoint because you have that incredible intricacy. And this, sometimes called the story structure, basically says that it starts with a courtship. 
chapters 1 through 3, the consummation of uh, this marriage in chapters 4 and 5, and the celebration of the marriage in chapters 5 through 8. I think that's a good structure for us to read it like a story. Well, the big deal with Song of Solomon is how do you interpret it? This has a lot of implications for us because those in the um, covenant theology, our brothers and sisters in the covenant theology camp, very often interpret Song of Solomon in the first two ways, either allegorically or typologically, because, and in fact, I, I, I read an author just a couple of weeks ago who was very denigrating. He says, uh, the, the Bible is much more than just a marriage manual. What that is is a dig at Song of Solomon as being about marriage. That somehow Christ is much more than marriage. Well, of course Christ is much more than marriage. But marriage is a picture of what? Christ in the church. And so if we're to be an accurate depiction of Christ in the church, God has told us how to do that. And so one interpretation is, and there's a lot more than this. These are the big three, though. The allegorical interpretation. That this doesn't refer to actual people. It's a picture of God in Israel or a picture of Christ in the church. A short little notice here. Why can it not be a picture of Christ in the church? Because when it was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ, there was no church. Christ was not on earth. And so the original reader would never say, oh, of course, this is about the Messiah and this people that I know nothing about. Nobody would say that. Um, You get in trouble pretty fast with allegorical an allegorical um, interpretation because now you have to assign meanings to all the uh, imagery in the book. Well, the fox actually means this and the garden actually means this and you get these weird um, super spiritual meanings, uh, some of which we even hold to today. Uh, The Rose of Sharon, we say, is Christ. There, There are hymns that speak of the Rose of Sharon. The Rose of Sharon is a rose that grows in a place called Sharon. It's, it's that simple. There's the allegorical view. There's the typological view. It's similar. That it does refer to actual people, but there's a, a metaphorical purpose with greater truths. It's very similar to allegorical. They would say, well, yeah, this is an event that actually happened, but it has a, a much higher purpose. Um, where do these views come from? Both of those views most likely arose out of embarrassment and a faulty assumption that God would never speak in explicit terms regarding marriage. Why would we assume that? God is the one who invented marriage. God is the one who invented sexuality and marriage. Why would he be embarrassed? I mean, he's the inventor. There are many, many wonderful books and sermons that use Song of Solomon allegorically and it does make a wonderful picture of God and his people. But that's not the intended purpose of the book. Uh, Can you use it as an illustration? Absolutely. Just like the uh, shepherd in chapter 1 says to his bride-to-be, you are the most beautiful of women, so we can also say that Christ views us with the very righteousness of God, or God views us with the very righteousness of Christ because of the cross. Yes, you can use that as an illustration. Does that mean that the original purpose, when the shepherd says, says, I don't care if you've been out and gotten sunburned a lot, you're still the most beautiful of women to me. Is that the purpose? No. The purpose is to teach men how to treat their wives. That's the purpose. So, yeah, great sermons. I've heard some wonderful sermons with Song of Solomon used allegorically. There's just the wrong, the right application from the wrong text is all that is. Then there's the view of this being a historical event with the purpose of memorializing God's view of love and marriage. 
Now, I would even go so far as to say that it is a poem of something that really happened, but written in poetic form and edited to be maybe better than what actually happened. Did Solomon spontaneously come up with beautiful chiastic poems to tell this bride on the spur of the moment? Probably not. But his view of it is that he went back and rewrote uh, Spurgeon's sermons. If you've read Charles Spurgeon, his sermons are not the actual words he spoke. It's the written down words of about a half dozen people he had out in his congregation writing down what he was saying and then editing it. That's why he seems like the most eloquent preacher ever because they never put in there any, uh, or hey, I lost my place. Hang on a minute here. Or, ah, choo, excuse me. None of that's in there. So is Song of Solomon an edited poem of something that really happened? That's the view I would take. Um, and what about the fact that uh, Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines? That's an issue that the story does not choose to uh, address. But let me give you three variations on this interpretation. By the way, allegorizing it didn't begin um, until a thousand years after it was written. So, um, so you can't say that was the original purpose. Three variations to the historical view and then we'll be done. The first interpretation is that it's a love story about Solomon and a, a, a Shulamite woman. Um, <clears throat> either this is very early in Solomon's life before his polygamy began or maybe through true love, uh, this woman rescued Solomon from his polygamy. Um, This is what's called the two-character interpretation. I've already told you that's what I hold to. It makes the most sense. It's the loyal, dedicated love of one man and one woman. Uh, Second interpretation, it's a love story about a maiden and her love for a rustic shepherd that wins the day over over King Solomon who has all uh, all of his harems and his wealth. Um, there are some merits to that view, but again, it presents Solomon as the writer of the greatest love story in history in which he loses. That's probably not going to be the case. And the third interpretation, it's a more general interpretation that the song may be a fictional account using Solomon as sort of a, a historical fiction type character. It places less emphasis on the reality of the characters and more emphasis on the story itself. And that one's okay. I, I, there's no, nothing wrong with that. And there's no reason to be dogmatic on any of those three, but the first version, a love story about Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Um, by the way, uh, the Shulamite woman can be assigned a, um, a proper name, Shulamith. Why would we say it's Solomon and Shulamith? Solomon is the masculine version of peace, shalom, and Shulamith is the feminine version of peace, shalom that they live in peace together in their relationship. So that it makes it a beautiful story. A couple more thoughts. Most of the book is written from a woman's perspective. That is useful to know, men. I don't understand women. Well, read Song of Solomon, and that'll tell you. Another interesting thought, the woman is portrayed as pursuing the man more than the other way around. That is a myth to say that men do all the pursuing, women do all the responding. Not according to Song of Solomon, there's also mystery and intrigue. It's meant to convey the emotion and the, the passion of marriage. And how useful is the book? I, I think every married couple ought to read through Song of Solomon on an occasional basis and just walk through it and enjoy it. 
One of my favorite parts of the book, and it happens three times, is the warning to the unmarried to not awaken passion before being of marriageable age. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What does this mean? It means you don't date when you're 15. I tell young people, they say, well, how do I know when I'm ready to go on a date? Well, for men, it's easy. Do you have a job? Do you have a car? Do you have a house? Uh, do you, are you a grown-up? Are, are you still living off your parents? If you're a man, get married. If you're not a man yet, then do all these things to become a man. And very similar idea for women as well. Uh, Song of Solomon is very much an argument against our traditional American view of dating. Uh, it, it argues hard against that. And I know all of you are going, well, I met my wife on a date. Well, great. God works in mysterious ways. I did too. But when you're teaching your children, you tell them, don't stir up love. Don't pretend to be married. Don't stir up these feelings toward another person when you're eight years out from being able to do anything about it. Don't stir it up. So the answer is not pretending that marital love doesn't exist but to understand marital love as explained in Scripture and then wait for the right time, which is marriageable age. So there we go. We did uh, three wisdom books in one hour, so you guys are very patient. Let's pray and we'll be done. Thank you, Father, for these three wisdom books. I pray that they're a delight to us. I pray that we would have a hunger to go and read them once again. They're, they're not, none of them are that long. And, and to just enjoy the richness of the wisdom that you have given in the Spirit of God, which allows us to apply this wisdom successfully. Thank you, Lord, for all who have listened to this, and I pray it's a blessing to them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.